0: This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime which some listeners may find distressing, so, as always, discretion is advised. It's New Year's Eve of 1976, and members of the old-time dance club for the market town of Swaffham, the civil parish of the Breckland District of Norfolk, are gathered in the Swaffham assembly rooms to see the old year out in style, about a hundred people are present as Joan and Terry McQuaid lead a modern sequence dance to music played by the Peddlers' Ensemble. Later, before the new year would be brought in with the sound of a hundred voices joining to sing "Old Lang Syne, Jack Howes and company presented what the Lynn Advertiser described as a gruesome cabaret involving a headless woman. This is not a folktale though there are legends which haunt the local area. If you look at an old ordnance survey map, and for some reason your eyes fall south of Swatham, between there and the little village of Cockley Clay, you might spot a place in the midst of the countryside marked cryptically as Bride's Pit. According to a 1972 book entitled Ribbons from the Peddler's Pack, Bride's Pit was once the location of a fathomless pool, and the name A Corruption of Bird's Pit, changed with the legend of a couple returning from their wedding one dark night, only to find that their horse-drawn coach was plunged into the pit, and the bride drowned. I see Bride's Pit while scouring an old OS map of the area, looking for an unmarked location, I know that the spot is somewhere not far from the road between Swaffham and Cockley Clay, and that in 1974 it was opposite REF Marham's rifle ranges, on the way to a place called Breakhill Farm, on the expansive land of Cockley Clay Hall, which was owned by the family of Sir Peter Roberts, a former Conservative Party politician. The roads from Swaffham extend like a spider's web, with the town at the very centre and the place I'm searching for is just off of an unnaturally straight path between Clay Road and Brandon Road. Nowadays, if you use Google Maps, you won't find the Brake Hill track marked by anything more than a thin white line, but if you visit the area and pull over on the Brandon Road side of the path, a sign reads, "Brake Hill Public Footpath to Clay Road, One Mile. The day I visit, it's December, And the winter landscape is dramatically different to how it would have been in August of 1974, the month in which this case begins. The day my partner and I drive there, it's mostly overcast and seems to be threatening rain. After finding the Brandon Road sign, we attempt to drive around the Cockley Clay side of the path. After finding the Brandon Road sign, we attempt to drive around to the Clay Road side of the path, this isn't as easy as we were expecting. Clay Road is closed at the Swaffham end, and our satnav, which is set to navigate the quickest available route, sends us on a four-mile detour around winding single-track country lanes and an avenue of tall pines, which twist and curl their limbs above us. The detour takes us in a semicircle from Swaffham to Cockley Clay, which is one of those places that are no more than a small triangle of houses. And you'd barely register as a village if you didn't know it already was. When we finally reach Break Hill, we have to pull over on the muddy, rutted entrance to the path. I'm taken with the landscape, which is mostly cultivated wintergreen fields and silver puddles which reflect the shifting sky. Despite its proximity to Swaffham and probably influenced by our four-mile detour, this location feels incredibly remote, while researching the case, I found the local news section of the Lynn Advertiser, and squashed between hefty paragraphs for places like Clenchwarton and Creek. The section for Cockley Clay read Mr. H. Banner of Clifton Villa, Swaffham, saw a wheat ear on Cockley Clay Heath on March 12. As I stare along the muddy path of Brake Hill, I try to imagine the very different scene which occurred there about 150 to 200 yards away from the Clay Road on Tuesday the 27th of August 1974. It was between 6am and 7.15 that a farm worker and his son were on their way to work at Brake Hill Farm when they spotted something unusual laying on the dense willow herb and bracken of the heathland. Hidden under a light brown plastic dust cover, which bore the marking NCR in gold letters, there lay a terrible discovery. Dressed in a pink Marks and Spencer nightgown was the body of a woman. The woman was well built, aged between 23 and 35. Her arms were rope-bound behind her back and her legs bent at the knees. But worst of all was the fact that the woman's neck vertebrae had been sawn right through, and that her head was nowhere to be seen. 47 years later, despite the emergence and advances of DNA technology, the headless woman at Cockley Clay still remains unidentified, and her killer has never been brought to justice. I'm Jess Carter, and this is a Patreon-exclusive episode of The Outlines podcast. the discovery at Cockley Clay, the woman's body was taken to Ipswich, where the post-mortem was performed by Home Office pathologist Dr Alfred Lindhut, but no cause of death could be established. Bruises were found on her legs and buttocks, though, which led police to hypothesise that her body had been dragged over a hard surface. Dr Lindhut was also able to say that the woman was not pregnant at the time of her death, and that, in his opinion, she had probably never had children. It was also suggested that due to the decomposition of the body, it had probably lain near Break Hill for two to three weeks before it was discovered. As the post-mortem got underway, about a 100 policemen, including 40 detectives, descended on the Cockley Clay area to help begin the search for evidence. The afternoon of the discovery... Police requested that a nearby field of barley be cut and a slightly hazy black and white photo still exists of a detective riding a combine harvester as he scours the area for clues. While the detective rode around on his combine harvester, tracker dogs and teams of uniformed officers risked stings from disturbed wasps nests as they searched the hedgerows, fields and hollows of the surrounding area. Regional Crime Squad officers, forensic scientists, and a botany expert were brought in to assist with the investigation, and as inquiries progressed, even a helicopter was used to photograph the area, in the hopes that it might reveal something not visible from the ground. An incident room was set up in a courthouse, which stood next to Swaffham Police Station, and a mobile headquarters was also established in the field near where her body had been found. On the side of this van was a poster on which it asked people to come in and speak to officers if they had used the Clay Road in the past month or knew of anyone who had gone missing. Further afield, every police force in the country was issued with posters appealing for information. The posters, headed murder, showed a woman in a nightdress with a question mark where her face should be. They read... On August the 27th, 1974, the body of a woman was found near Swaffham. She was at least 23 years of age, about 5 foot 1 inches tall and well-built. She was wearing only the pink nightdress shown. So far, she has not been identified. In large red letters, the poster appealed for anyone with any information to contact the incident room at Swaffham with details. Locally, over the coming days when no weapon or other clues were forthcoming, the investigation spread to -to house-to-house inquiries, and it was estimated that every house in Cockley Clay and Swatham was visited. Later, the area would widen again to include homes south of Cockley Clay, including Goodeston and Oxborough, and to the north and west of Swatham in a ten-mile radius. In a six-week period, it was estimated that 15,000 people were spoken to and catalogued on filing cards at the incident room in Swatham. By Friday the 30th of August 1974, three days after the discovery of the woman's body, Detective Superintendent Ivan Mead, Deputy Head of the Norfolk CID and the man leading the investigation, told the press that police were working under the impression that she had been killed elsewhere and then brought to Break Hill, Possibly in the boot of a car, a theory which was supported by her bent legs and arms bound behind her. Superintendent Mead suggested that the fact that she was dressed only in a nightdress meant that she had probably not come from a long distance away, and posited that perhaps because it was the height of the holiday season in Norfolk, the killer had thought the location a good place to dispose of the body. Superintendent Meade appealed for anyone who may have seen something to come forward and said, they might have seen a vehicle parked strangely, or something like that. I can say that having regard to the sort of place this is, people need to have no fear of coming to see us. It is reported that in these early stages, over a thousand separate lines of inquiry were investigated, and that Interpol and the FBI were also involved. It's not reported why the FBI and Interpol were brought in, but if I had to guess, it would be something to do with RAF Marham's shooting ranges, which lay just opposite the Brake Hill track. The station was, at the time, reportedly home to many American servicemen. While the investigations in the area were leading to nothing, police were trying to glean evidence from the scant clues found with the woman's body. They began by releasing photographs of the distinctive plastic dust sheeting and the woman's nighty. The sheeting was made of a thin plastic material with one shiny surface and one mat. It measured 8 foot by 5 foot 6 inches and had NCR or National Cash Register's logo screen printed in gold letters in the centre. The sheet consisted of two panels which had been stitched and welded together. It was a slightly irregular shape and had a tear at the bottom left-hand corner and two slits in the centre. The folds in the sheet appeared to be the original ones and led police to believe it had probably not been used much. A statement from the Times said that it may be that such a sheet is missing from a machine but it is also possible that it has been used domestically or as a ground sheet. Nowadays, Police say that they have fully exhausted all possible avenues related to the dust sheet, that was found to be quite rare, having been manufactured in Dundee in Scotland at the British headquarters of the NCR and was used to cover things like data processing machines. The subcontractors who made the sheeting manufactured it between 1962 and their reported closure in 1968, as well as the dust sheet police also had the nightgown which unfortunately proved to be a little less rare having been one of a good selling line at marks and spencers who estimated that 10,000 dozen were made and on sale in their shops between 1968 and 1970 i'll include a photograph of the nighty on instagram for those of you who want to see it i think it's safe to say that nighttime fashions have come a fairly long way since then The only other clue to the woman's identity was the rope with which her body had been tied. In January of 1975, after Mr. Leslie Allwood, the coroner at the inquest, had just recorded an open verdict, Superintendent Mead spoke to the press. He thanked them for their help in attempting to assist the police in finding leads, and reminded them that all they had to go on was the nightdress, the body itself, the plastic sheeting and the bindings, he went on to add the bindings were of such a common nature that it was hopeless to try and trace the source. With time, we now know that this isn't entirely the case. Speaking in an interview with the Eastern Daily Press in January of 2016, DCI Andy Guy told the paper, "...the rope used to tie the victim up was unusual, as it contained a non-standard makeup which would indicate a particular use." Further inquiries revealed that this type of rope was predominantly used in the agricultural business. An article from the Eastern Daily Press claimed that, like the cash register cover, this rope was also manufactured in Dundee. One of the most difficult things about approaching this case has been compiling an episode without knowing anything about the victim – It's so tough to read of a person being left in such a fashion and have nothing to offer in the way of biography or humanity to give to the person. In a 2016 article from the BBC entitled England's Unclaimed Dead and the People Trying to Give Them a Name, DCI Andy Guy spoke about the woman at Cockley Clay and told reporters, I feel I know her. I really do because I know so much about her. And it's true. He does. Over the years, advances in science have gone a long way towards being able to pinpoint where she might have come from and the kind of life she might have led. On the 16th of April 2008, the woman's body was exhumed and a DNA sample obtained. Following this, the Norfolk Police website reports that over 470 women from all over the country and further afield, who were reported missing in the early 1970s, have been traced and eliminated. Where the person themselves could not be found, DNA was taken from the closest living family member and compared to the sample taken from the Cockley Clay woman. While no one has yet been matched, Police keep the sample on file and are still hopeful that one day a link may be discovered. As well as the DNA sample, the cold case team drafted in a forensic anthropologist to examine the bones. Some water had passed through the grave, and so they did have slight wear. But unlike Dr Lindert, who performed the initial post-mortem, the anthropologist was able to say that there was evidence that the woman's pelvic girdle had widened, which was an indicator that she may, at some point, have given birth. This means that many of the women traced by the Norfolk and Suffolk cold case team after the exhumation would never have been looked at during the original investigation due to the belief that she had never previously given birth. The final test carried out by Andy Guy's team was an isotopic analysis which was used to help identify areas in which she could have lived. This analysis led the two expert scientists leading the study of her isotopic makeup to conclude that the woman had probably spent time in Central Europe. This is an area which encompassed Denmark, Germany, Austria, and Northern Italy. Another feature of this study was the revelation that the woman's diet appeared to be predominantly fish or shellfish. This information would lead the cold case team to speculate that the woman may have been someone who was known as the Duchess, who, for a while in 1973 and 74, reportedly lived in the Dockers' amenity block at the ocean terminals on the docks in Great Yarmouth on the east coast of Norfolk. The Duchess, who was reportedly secretive about her identity, was thought by workers to be from Denmark, although the cold-case team have reportedly spoken to several witnesses who met her, though they all provide differing information about her accent, which reportedly ranged from Danish to German to English. Regardless of origin, they agreed that she spoke fluent English. According to the great Yarmouth Mercury, the Duchess would use roll-on, roll-off ferries in the company of lorry drivers and regularly travelled between Denmark and Yarmouth. Regardless of the validity of this information, it is generally agreed that sometime between 1973 and seventy-four, the Duchess disappeared from the Dockers' hut where she had been staying, leaving behind all her belongings. While it may be that the Duchess had nothing at all to do with the woman at Cockley Clay, police have not been able to rule her out from their inquiries. In the Eastern Daily Press interview, Andy Guy said that the discovery of the woman's shellfish diet led them to one report of a woman known as the Duchess. He said she was known to the people in Great Yarmouth area, but one day just disappeared. It sounds as if someone in 1974 was responsible for reporting the missing Duchess, and there is some credibility to the story, albeit not necessarily a link. It appears as if, by this point in the investigation, there is little more that can be done until police can find a DNA match, or until someone new comes forward with information concerning a missing person. DCI Andy Guy has told Papers, I believe the victim was murdered in the first or second week of August 1974, so I would ask members of the public... Is there a female relative, friend, neighbour, or colleague who disappeared about this time and has not been seen since? This would apply even if you reported her missing to the police at the time. It's difficult to imagine the kind of person who might go missing and have no one report them gone. Even more so to think of what kind of circumstances might lead a woman to end up dead in the way that the victim at Cockley Clay did. Unfortunately, all we really have is speculation. She could have originally come from Central Europe, a runaway whom no one thought to report missing. She might have spent time in Scotland, specifically Dundee. And she might have had a child at some point during her life. She could be the Duchess and have spent time down at the docks in Great Yarmouth, or she could be any woman who has been missing for all this time in her m and no one knows the reason why her head had been removed. Perhaps it was just to conceal her identity, or perhaps to conceal the method of the murder itself. Whatever the case, I can't help but feel desperately sad for the woman who ended up nameless, wrapped in plastic sheeting by the side of a remote track near Cockley Clay, With the current rise of genetic genealogy in the United States, which has led to the identification of so many Jane and John Does, there is still hope that the same technology will one day be utilised in the UK. And maybe then, the woman at Cockley Clay will be given back her name. This episode of Outlines was researched, written and performed by Jess Carter. The sound design is by Stuart Gardner and the music composed by Elias Hardy.